Good morning. Jane Polly is off today. I'm Melody Hobson, and this is a special edition of Sunday Morning. It's the money issue, our annual look at how we spend, invest, and above all, earn our money. But will we all be able to earn good incomes if our country becomes an automation nation? That's the question David Pogue will consider in our cover story. With robots getting cheaper and software getting smarter. Look how delicate. Perfect every time. Are any jobs safe? This technology is not just coming for the unskilled or even entry-level jobs, but potentially for much higher-level jobs. Ahead on Sunday morning, are the robots going to take all our jobs, or can we all just get along? Thank you. Many happy returns is more than a birthday greeting. It's the guiding philosophy at many of our biggest retailers. Tracy Smith has been checking it out. Take you back. American shoppers return more than $200 billion worth of unwanted stuff every year. But did you ever hear about the lady who tried to return a car to Land's End? Or the guy who took his snow tires back to Nordstrom? Is the snow tire story true? That is a true story. We said, here you go. Here's your 50 bucks back. Later on Sunday morning, we're taking it back. Take it back. Angel Inc. is our lighthearted description of a TV actress turned businesswoman. You may remember Jacqueline Smith from her days as a different sort of angel. John Blackstone has her story. Hello? It's Charlie, Angel. Time to go to work. Charlie's Angels made Jacqueline Smith a star in the 1970s. But now, many know her name because it's on so many labels at Kmart. We're, we're, we're surrounded by Jacqueline Smith. We are Smith surrounded, here. surrounded yes, by and Jacqueline here's Smith. one of my best-selling blouses. The secrets of celebrity branding from one of its pioneers, ahead on Sunday morning. Now trending, probably even as we speak, are some quirky online videos bound to become an internet sensation. Turns out, these little videos are big business, as Barry Peterson will show us. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? Years ago, we spent hours with Bogart and Bacall. Today? The internet blew up over this video of a rat carrying a whole slice of pizza down the stairs of a subway station. When you say, I'm the guy who filmed Pizza Rat, does anybody believe you? Uh, at first, no. How the pizza rat became famous. Coming up on Sunday morning. The sweet smell of success is our tribute to entrepreneurs who are taking their best ideas and making a fortune. Susan Spencer has found some colorful cases in point. This was my favorite color. Aaron Muterich has been puttering around with putty his entire adult life. And now, he has a multi-million dollar business to show for it. In your wildest dreams, did you ever expect this to take off like it has? No, never, ever, ever, ever. Unlikely success stories. <laughs> what do you think you could sell this for? $125? Wow. We already have 350,000 users all around the world. This Sunday morning. We'll have those stories and a lot more.
Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Our country is on the road to becoming an automation nation, quite literally on the road. Our money issue cover story is from David Pogue of Yahoo Finance. Tony Hughes has been a long-haul truck driver for more than 20 years. But today, all he has to do is sit back and relax. Okay, Rosebud is on. Woohoo! We're hauling 20,000 pounds of freight down the Florida Turnpike in a self-driving robotic truck. It's been retrofitted with a self-driving kit made by Starsky Robotics. Kartik Tiwari and Stefan Seltz-Oxmacher founded the company in 2016. We think that sometime towards the end of the year, uh, we could be doing this run without a person behind the wheel. This year? Yeah. Self-driving trucks this year? Yep. And if it's not his company, it might be Otto, whose truck made headlines last October by driving itself across Colorado to deliver a shipment of beer. Otto is owned by Uber, which has also been testing self-driving taxis in Pennsylvania and Arizona. But here's the thing. Once our trucks and taxis drive themselves, what will happen to the people who used to do those jobs? In the U.S., that's 180,000 taxi drivers, 600,000 Uber drivers, and 3.5 million truck drivers. We really need to start to think very seriously about this. Martin Ford is the author of Rise of the Robots. This is it. He says driverless cars and trucks are just the beginning of a wave of automation that will threaten millions of jobs in every industry at once. Like America's nearly 5 million store workers. Later this year, shoppers in Seattle will be able to walk into the first Amazon Go grocery, take what they want, and walk out again. Sensors will detect what you take and bill you automatically. The cashiers are totally gone. You're going to end up with the equivalent of a Walmart with, you know, a handful of employees. You scale that out, and that's just extraordinarily disruptive. You name an occupation, and there's somebody considering a robot to take it over. Look how delicate. Perfect every time. At Zoom Pizza in Silicon Valley, four specialized robots help make the pizza. Eventually, the company plans to replace the remaining humans on the line, too. Here's Zoom's chief technology officer, Josh Goldberg. You would think there would be some Roman pizza chefs who'd say, no, this is not the way it's been done since our ancestors. Well, the world changes. You know, there's a lot of other things we don't do just the way our ancestors did, either. The common wisdom is that robots primarily threaten repetitive blue-collar jobs. Not so, says Martin Ford. We're seeing dramatic advances in in the area of computers, analyzing tumors, recognizing medical scans, mammograms, and being able to find disease. We're seeing, you know, algorithms move into areas like journalism, for example. (laughs) Wait, wait, wait. (laughs) Certainly not journalism. Oh, yeah. Absolutely (laughs) journalism. Um, By one account, every 30 seconds, there's a news story published on the web or maybe in a newspaper that's machine-generated. Algorithms are even threatening the masters of the universe. Two weeks ago, BlackRock, the world's largest money manager, announced that it's laying off dozens of human stock pickers and replacing them with robots. By 2025, 
Across the financial industry, artificial intelligence is expected to replace 230,000 human workers. Bring on the disruption that is automation. Alicia Wiesel is the chief information officer at Goldman Sachs. The company now hires nearly as many computer engineers as financial workers. In the movie Wall Street, they would have been barking, buy, 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 into the phone. <laughs> yes, and now they're going, click, 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 tight, tight, tight. <laughs> See the famous Goldman Sachs trading floor? Well, a quarter of these people aren't traders. They're coders, writing software to automate the routine grunt work of employees all across the company. Someday, could software replace the functions of these folks? That's a great question. I don't think anybody knows the answer. All right, we get it. No job is safe. According to one recent study, 47% of American jobs could be lost to automation in the next 20 years. Martin Ford says it's time to start thinking about what we're going to live on in the post-robot economy. One of the best ideas out there is some kind of a universal basic income or a guaranteed minimum income. And this is where everybody gets, let's say, $10,000 a year just for being alive. Right. I think a better way to think of it is in terms of the idea that we built this tremendously prosperous society. Everyone ought to have, if you're a citizen at least, some sort of ownership stake in this. But the purpose of having a job is not just to have income. It, it's also meaning and purpose and a place to go every day. That's right. That's going to be a real challenge. Yes, it is. But I think it's a challenge we can solve. Ah, uh, but wait. Most experts do agree that automation will soon take over millions of our jobs. But they don't all agree that that will mean mass unemployment. History has suggested that the, the pessimists have been wrong time and time again. Including MIT economist David Otter. You know, the last 200 years, we've had an incredible amount of automation. We have tractors that do the work that horses and people used to do on farms. So we don't dig ditches by hand anymore. We don't pound tools out of wrought iron. We don't do bookkeeping with books. <laughs> but this has not, in net, reduced the amount of employment. He also points out that the changes won't happen overnight. I'm sure 20 years from now, almost no one will be driving a vehicle. Young people are forward-looking, and they say, well, I guess I'm not going to have a driving career, so I'm not going to go there. Well, except that these young people might think, well, maybe I'll go into retail, but that's also going away. Well, maybe I'll be a chef, but that's also going away. Well, maybe I'll be a paralegal, but that's also going away. So let's do the following thought exercise. It's the year 1900, and 40% of all employment is in agriculture, right? And so some twerpy economist from MIT teleports back in time to Farmer Pogue here and says, 100 years from now, only 2% of people will be working in agriculture. What do you think the other 38% of people are going to do? Well, I wouldn't know. We, we say, oh, search engine optimization, <laughs> you know, uh, health and wellness, software and mobile devices. Most of what we do barely existed 100 years ago. In other words, just because we can't predict what we'll be doing doesn't mean we'll be doing nothing. And sure enough... Despite having replaced so many stock traders with software, Alicia Wiesel says that Goldman Sachs still employs the same number of people and that their jobs have been enhanced by automation. And all of a sudden, that young person is engaging with the client on their actual problems rather than being stuck till 1 a.m. doing nothing but manning several different spreadsheets and trying to corral all this data together. You'll hear the same argument at Starsky Robotics. Its trucks will self-drive only on the highways. The company will still employ human drivers, but they'll sit in front of screens, driving the trucks by remote control. 
once they're off the highway. And if Tony Hughes can keep his job without the weeks away. So on that aspect, it's going to make my life better. If you get hired to be one of the pilots, the remote control pilots, right? True. Well, he's, uh, he's on the top of the list. <laughs> so since this might be my last chance to be in a truck with a human driver, I had to ask. Will you? Yeah, I will. Yes! yes! I'd like to see a robot do that. Ahead. You are literally throwing money away if you're not getting miles and points. Points. Well taken. In my work in the financial industry, I travel a lot. But most of us have miles to go before we earn a trip thanks to a frequent flyer program. Which brings us to this report from Anna Warner. You can put your clothes in there, and I'm putting the boys' clothes right here. Oh, we got plenty of room in here. Cincinnati residents Dan Miller and his wife Carolyn are getting their six kids ready for a spring break trip to California. Sounds expensive, right? But... I would say we'll manage to take this trip for probably $500. 500 bucks for a family of eight. For a week. In fact, the Miller family's been able to travel the world on a computer programmer's salary. This is a map that I got for Christmas last year. Red tracks the places that I've been. Or... All by using airline miles or credit card points. Okay, so how many credit cards do you have? Uh, I would say between my wife and I, we probably have maybe 40 cards. 40? Yeah. A couple of years ago for Christmas, uh, my kids made me this. He's not your average card user, though. It says Dad's Dad's credit card binder. binder. Miller got so good at this card game, he started writing a blog called Points with a Crew. You don't have to be as crazy as I am. I like to tell people, if you do it right, you can really, with one or two additional credit card signups, you can take your family somewhere for, for free using those miles. And guess what? The savings really add up. I would say tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars over the course of the last couple of years. No surprise to Brian Kelly. You are literally throwing money away if you're not getting miles and points. He should know. He's the points guy. At the gate, I met my butler, Aaron, who brought me on board and introduced me to my three-cabin suite, which, to be honest, was a bit smaller than I expected. Someone who turned a lifelong passion for travel into a website that gets over 3 million views a month from fans eager to learn his secrets. The first thing to do if you want to have a good miles and points strategy is to get the right credit cards. These are not frequent flyer programs anymore. They're frequent spender programs. So why is it worth it for the credit card companies to do that? It's a huge business. So the credit card companies charge merchants for every time you swipe your credit card, The merchant is paying the credit card issuer for the ability to process your transaction, and then the credit card company kicks you back a portion of that in the form of rewards. The airlines make out too, getting roughly half their profits by selling miles to credit card companies, who use them as incentives to get consumers to sign up for their cards, often with huge sign-up bonuses. And the general trend in the airline industry is that things are getting a lot worse in the back of the plane. So that's really why miles and points, I view it as a way for the common person who can't afford that $10,000 first class seat, but you can book it using miles and points. Everyday people can travel like millionaires. 
Sacramento here is where we're going next, and then Peru we're going in a couple of months. On the other hand, both men warn their readers not everyone should play this game. If you're in debt or don't pay off your card balances in full every month, this game will not deal you a winning hand. And you absolutely have to have financial discipline. No amount of rewards that you're getting are going to offset the 25% interest that you're paying on your credit card balance. But for Miller, it's been an inexpensive way to offer his kids a valuable lesson. Everywhere else, people are just people. Whether it's in another state, another city, another country, people are pretty much the same no matter where you go. And being able to see that, I think, makes a big difference. Good point. Squeeze the light and, and you can draw on the putty. Coming up. Seem to be having a good time. Right? <laughs> we see the light. There you go. There we That's go. Good. That's All a right. Smile. Along with its eerie glow, this strange looking stuff gives off the sweet smell of success. And it's the first of some unlikely success stories we'll be hearing about throughout the morning from Susan Spencer. It's no stretch to say that Aaron Muterich is stuck on putty. It feels great in your hand. You can play with it for hours. His first love was classic silly putty. It's silly putty time. But that soon got old. I started researching. Is there a way to make this more beautiful, more fun? Which is how Aaron, a computer scientist by day, became a mad scientist by night. You taught yourself chemistry to improve silly putty. I taught myself enough <laughs> chemistry to create thinking putty. This is neon flash. Crazy Aaron's thinking putty, that is. Puttering with putty, he experimented with colors and textures in his basement, then took it to work. I would bring in a box, keep it under my desk, and uh, people would come over and they would say, hey, can I get a half pound of orange? And <laughs> Sounds I would, like a drug deal. <laughs> and I would put it in a Ziploc bag and off they would go. Soon he launched a website. Then he hit the front page of the Wall Street Journal in a feature on fidgeters who play with putty. Who was your target audience? People working at a desk just like me. Adults. Adults. <laughs> but today, fans of all ages are putty in his hands. What exactly is it? From a chemistry standpoint, it's a silicone rubber. This is some pretty gnarly stuff, huh? On any given day, you'll find 25 tons of it oozing around his factory near Philadelphia. At up to 15 bucks a tin, Aaron's putty is a multi-million dollar worldwide business. Ah, oh, it's this beautiful. this is just so metallic and reflective. Yeah. The best seller? Liquid, Liquid glass. glass. That's clear. That's the more than 50 varieties good. include... Kids sometimes use it as a nightlight. Glow in the dark. And I could do my snake charmer trick. And magnetics. How do you think of this stuff? <laughs> but perhaps Aaron's most magical moment... Thumbs up. ...was his decision to employ people with physical and intellectual disabilities, some 800 of them. We were able to make it work. You have people that really love what they do. Good. And now you have a loyal team. A very nice twist to an unlikely success story. When somebody asks you what you do for a living, what do you say? Putty maker. Professional kid. Professional kid, I like that. Yeah. I'm going to use that. Still to come, where videos go before going viral. 
and many happy returns. Was there anything wrong with them? No. Okay. My mom. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Even when it's not your birthday, you can expect to hear many happy returns at plenty of retailers. It's a policy that makes a lot of sense, and dollars too. Tracy Smith does the math. If you've ever bought khakis or a school uniform, you probably know Land's End. Was there anything wrong with them? No. And if you've ever tried to return something there, you know their policy too. Love it forever or get a refund. No time limit. Seems like it'd be hard to make any money that way, but Land's End has turned a corporate policy into an empire. How big is this facility? It's over a million square feet. Thank goodness for the golf carts if it's a million square feet. The sprawling company headquarters in Dodgeville, Wisconsin, has a kind of airplane hangar quality to it. Here, customers worldwide can order up, let's say, a pair of pants, get them custom hemmed, even monogrammed with their name. And if they ever fall out of love with it, they can mail it here, where someone like Marie Miller will take it back, even if it's been, well, used. It's, it's our policy, so, you know. You mean to tell me I could buy a swimsuit, wear it for 10 years, and then return it? Absolutely. Kelly Ritchie is VP of Customer Services. But you can't resell it. In some cases, no. So do you think that the customers feel so loyal that they don't want to cheat you? Our customers are incredibly loyal, and we have such strong relationships with our customers that um, our return rates are, are really within industry standards. So it is just not a problem. Return policies in general can be opportunities for the unscrupulous, like people who buy something, wear it once, and return it, something known as wardrobing. The National Retail Federation says return fraud cost companies more than $9 billion last year. And companies like L.L. Bean are reportedly rethinking their generous return policies. Land's End says they're staying the course. I'd like to believe that our return policy builds trust and loyalty with our customers, um, but they don't abuse it, surprisingly. But they've tested the limits. For instance, this black cab was offered in the 1984 Christmas catalog, an authentic London taxi stuffed with a grand worth of goodies. It sold quickly, but 20 years later, the owners wanted to return it. Yep, they took it back and refunded their money, $19,000. Impressive, sure, but there's psychology behind all this. Would you tell a story it's a good idea to have a liberal return policy? Yes, I would. What's more, says USC marketing professor Valerie Folks, the more liberal the return deadline, the better. If you're on deadline, you're more likely to return it than if you're not on deadline? If you have a close deadline, yes. But if you're thinking about that deadline as being six months in the future, you don't think about these things as much. And after all, let's face it, oftentimes we don't follow through on what we plan to do. So for certain companies, easy return policies make sense, and some have become the stuff of legend. Take it back. Outdoor gear seller REI reportedly took back a used baby carriage because the mom said her children had outgrown it. A Costco customer is said to have successfully returned an empty bottle because the wine inside had given her a headache. 
And the story goes, the luxury department store Nordstrom once took back a set of snow tires to keep a customer happy. Take it back. And they don't even sell snow tires. Is the snow tire story true? That is a true story. We opened a store in uh, Fairbanks, Alaska in the 70s uh, in a building that uh, had previously been a hardware store. And a customer came to return some tires that they bought in that hardware store. And we said, here you go. Here's your 50 bucks back. Jamie Nordstrom uh, is the company's uh, president of stores. He says that his employees are allowed to do whatever it takes, within reason, to keep shoppers happy. I think... Part of having a more liberal return policy uh, conveys to the customer that we trust them and we appreciate their business and we're loyal to them. And so we think if we do our part uh, with that, then uh, customers will return the favor. Have you seen that happen? For 116 years we have, yeah. I mean, it almost sounds like Nordstrom believes in the good of mankind. Well, we, we do think people are generally good and fair, and that's been our experience for a long, long time. And, and we think that if we do uh, our part in doing a good job for them, uh, that they'll return it uh, by being loyal to us. Retailers also know that once you actually get something home, you're much more likely to keep it. It's called the endowment effect. In the sense that there's an endowment effect which says that losses loom larger than gains. What that basically means is that if you have something, it hurts to lose it. And that's where returning an object that you own feels a bit like a loss. So once I have that blouse in my closet, I feel like it's mine and I'm losing it if I give it back, even if it's still got the tags on it. Yes, exactly, yes. And of course, once you're in the store returning something, you'll probably buy something else. So go ahead. You can always take it back. <laughs> that gives you that flair. Just ahead, slice of life. Now trending is what social media watchers say when a video goes viral. And where there are viewers, there's money to be made, as Barry Peterson demonstrates. Oh my God, I see it! I see it! It's right next to me! You may have seen this one. Look at that! A girl freaked out by a manatee. Or the baby slathered in peanut butter. Does it feel good? Uh, yeah. And surely you've seen mom in a Chewbacca mask. And it received over 150 million views wow. in 24 hours. And there's no doubt about it. I bet you that Chewbacca mask will be in the Smithsonian someday. <laughs> While we had fun watching, Jonathan Scogmo was striking gold, turning viral videos from big laughs into big bucks. Five years ago, he founded Jukin Media. Jukin is Chicago's street slang for it's happening. His team works 24-7 in Los Angeles, New York, and London. When it's good, Jukin finds who shot it and makes an exclusive deal. Next thing you know, they've marketed the video to late night talk shows or the local news. The checks come in and Jukin splits the fees with the video makers. As little as a few hundred dollars to thousands and thousands of dollars. And we've paid for people's colleges, family vacations, family trips, holiday gifts. How many months or years do you want to own this stuff? Perpetuity. 
you will be paid every single time someone else licensed that video. We've paid over $10 million to video owners. What's with the... So, every time we get a really popular video in, mm -hmm. we start ringing bells and there's a lot of activity that goes on. Yesterday, the internet blew up over this video of a rat carrying a whole slice of pizza down the stairs of a subway station. This did feel like lightning in a bottle to me. Just Aspiring actor and comedian yeah, Matt Little was, made viral history like in September 2015 when his iPhone captured just another surreal New York City moment. It instantly became Pizza Rat. It did give me more money for the least amount of work than I've, that I've ever done in my life. Money still coming in? Yeah, there's still some money coming in. It was in the new Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie last year. Yep, Pizza Rap got a movie cameo, something Matt still hopes to get. Keep in mind, these videos have a global audience. It's a language agnostic at the end of the day. Language agnostic. What does that mean? What's a good example of that? A good example is that a cute kid here in America is going to be a cute kid in Germany. By now you're asking, can I turn my cat video into money? These videos are raw, they're organic. You can't remanufacture these moments. These are real life moments. And the competition is beyond fierce. 400 hours of new videos are uploaded every minute. Every minute. On YouTube alone, correct. And Jukin is not the only company doing this. To Jukin co-founder Josh Entman, that means the hits just keep coming. Everyone literally in the world with a cell phone camera works for you. To an extent, that is true. Think of it as democracy meets storytelling. Anyone, anywhere can capture a moment. Make us laugh, make us cry, and make some money. <laughs> that is the best birthday present ever to myself. Coming up, rags to riches. The clothes in Jade Meyer's closet just hang out eagerly awaiting their next closet. Everything I own, I sell. Everything you yeah, own, I sell. Yeah, I rotate everything through. Myers calls herself a professional thrifter. What exactly is thrifting? Thrifting basically means you're going to go and find secondhand clothing that's been donated, and generally you find a really good deal. So you don't see this as just a bunch of old clothes? No, I see it as treasure. Her hunt for literally buried treasure takes her to thrift stores like this one in Brooklyn, New York. <laughs> Finding the time to do this meant quitting her day job. What was it, the decision to go out on your own with old clothes? Well, they're not old. They're pretty old. <laughs> <laughs> they're looking pretty bad here. Whoa, la la. But Myers knows exactly what she's looking for. But if you can only imagine, somebody in the 80s totally rocked this. Would you take something like this? Absolutely, any really? day of the week. <laughs> this is for hunting season. <laughs> it's 25 bucks for all the stuff you can stuff into a single bag. Jade left with three. 
What's your first outfit gonna be? First, she cleans, sizes, and with the help of a friend who's a model, photographs each piece. Go. I think that's good. Then up it goes on Poshmark, an app started by Manish Chandra in Redwood City, California. There's almost a trillion dollars worth of clothes that are sitting in people's closets. And so we wanted to make it super easy for anybody to sell and open up a boutique. Easy enough that Poshmark says some two million people are now using the app to sell discarded duds. Myers herself has more than 50,000 followers. Do you have in your mind a profile of who your best customer is? The one who buys from me again. (laughs) She says she nets up to six grand a month. What is the highest profit margin you've ever made on an item? I had a fur coat that I actually found once for $4, and I think I sold it for about 1,000. Wow. Talk about rags to riches. Up next. Very good. It's very good. Sweet. Kito Kato is more than the Japanese name for the candy we all know as Kit Kat. It's Japan's national obsession. Here's Moraka. At a shop in Tokyo's bustling Ginza district, luxury Kit Kats are on full display. That's right luxury Kit Kats. And the mastermind behind these $5 Kit Kat confections is pastry chef Yasumasa Takagi. In general, says Chef Takagi, the Japanese prefer mild flavors rather than aggressive flavors that hit you over the head. Takagi's concocted Kit Kats with flavors like matcha green tea, butter, and strawberry maple. Cedric LaCroix is Kit Kat's man in Japan. How big is the Kit Kat in Japan? Kit Kat is very, very big. We consume up to 5 million Kit Kats a day in Japan. You might call its popularity a case of Kit Kat Kismet. Kito Kato, the Japanese pronunciation of Kit Kat, sounds an awful lot like Kitokatsu, which in Japanese means you surely will win. Which explains why, for Japanese students during the high-pressure exam season, the kitokato has become a kind of edible talisman. When it was discovered that the name meant surely you will win, then the company shrewdly decided to capitalize on that. Absolutely, absolutely. And it became part of the company mission to, to, to play this lucky charm. So KitKat's mission in Japan is, is really to, to uh, encourage people. And to sell some not-so-mildly flavored KitKats to tourists. Anyone in the mood for a purple sweet potato KitKat? Mm. Or a bite of a refreshing apple KitKat? You say a Kit Kat a day keeps the doctor away. (laughs) Or perhaps you'd like to spice things up with a wasabi Kit Kat. Hey, buddy, go easy on that sake Kit Kat. It really does taste like sake. We appeal more and more to foreigners because they have read uh, on Facebook or social media that the Japanese Kit Kat was fantastic. So when they come here, they want to taste. Kit Kat diplomacy. (laughs) Bring them, right? (laughs) United color of Kit Kat. Back in his patisserie, Chef Takagi indulged me as we went about creating a new premium Kit Kat. Raspberry, pistachio, strawberry. 
I know it sounds crazy, but could we mix the pistachio with the raspberry? Oh, hmm. shall we give that a try? Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> the color will probably be ghastly, but it smells good, doesn't it? Oh, the color is awful, isn't it? Try a taste. It's very good. It's very good. Try it. Very good. Oishi. 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 That means delicious. Behold, the Raspaccio Kit Kat. I believe I have passed my exam. Still to come, Jacqueline Smith from Charlie's Angel. We're surrounded by Jacqueline Smith. And here's one of my best-selling blouses to Angel Inc. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Help you, mister? I'd like to see Mrs. Lemaire. Is she in? The Money Issue, a special edition of Sunday Morning. Here again is Melody Hobson. Jacqueline Smith was one of TV's Charlie's Angels a few decades back. Fast forward to today, and you could call her Angel Inc. And with John Blackstone, we watch her at work. And three, two, one, action. At her home in Los Angeles, Jacqueline Smith is right at home, shooting a commercial for the clothing line she helps design for Kmart. This is it. The ad is a family affair, with roles for Smith's daughter, Spencer, and even her six-month-old granddaughter, Bee. Is this your favorite? It can't all be your favorite. It's all part of Smith's very personal involvement in building her brand with Kmart since the 1980s. All I can say about branding, if you do it for the paycheck, walk away. It doesn't work. It is the day-to-day details. It's becoming a part of that company. And Smith is very much a part of Kmart. We're, we're, we're surrounded by Jacqueline Smith. We are Smith. surrounded, yes. by And here's Smith. one of my best-selling blouses, uh-huh. which I love. And... Uh, as I've said, we've sold about 400,000 last year. 400,000 of these? Of blouses. Her clothing line is just the beginning. And then here are my slinky tees, 700,000. The discount chain sells everything from shoes to sheets that carry Jacqueline Smith's name. Walking around the store here, I'm trying to figure out what percentage of, of this store is filled with Jacqueline Smith. It's a big percentage. You know, um, well, after 32 years, I deserve it, right? <laughs> this is a Smith movie. almost turned down Kmart's offer in the mid-1980s when celebrity branding was something few celebrities did. You were the first, weren't you? Well, I was the first celebrity brand in Kmart. You were almost the first celebrity brand Anywhere. Right, in 1985. Yeah, I mean, I was kind of, uh, you know, teased about it and made fun of. Back then, Jacqueline Smith was famous for being an angel. One of Charlie's angels. No, no, don't. Okay, don't get nervous. Charlie's Angels went on the air in 1976 with Smith, Farrah Fawcett, and Kate Jackson 
playing daring private detectives who sometimes had to fight crime in bikinis. Who's that? Certainly, Charlie's Angels, I think, was seen by some as a real feminist show. Others called it Jiggle TV, right? Right, right. I think they liked to think it was Jiggle TV, but it was so mild. It was, you know, I mean, when you compare it to what's happening today, it was a nursery rhyme. How long has it been since you've been Growing up in Houston, Smith never intended to be an actress. She trained to be a dancer. How'd you like to have a facial all over your body? But when she moved to New York, she was soon in front of the camera, shooting commercials. When you rinse, a trace of the cream lingers. Of those first commercials, Camay was the the Camay, Listerine, Woolite, you know, we just did like 100 commercials. But it was a great training ground because it really teaches you about camera and projecting on camera. There's no reason why your hand shouldn't look as good as your face. Her perfect looks were perfect for selling soap and skin cream. Her flowing hair, ideal for shampoo. Breck gets out the dirt, but leaves the natural shine. Breck uh, got me, uh, a producer noticed me by the name of Glenn Larson and gave me a starring role in McLeod. Mr. McLeod, you're bad news. And I got to do McLeod, and that opened up another show. So I did really quite a few shows before that one special show. Copies of the bank records you arranged for, Charlie. And the background. With Charlie's Angels, she was no longer just a pretty face in commercials. We were in people's living rooms every week. We were household names, so it opened up doors that we never dreamed about. Hi, I'm Jacqueline Smith. She still made ads, but now her name was as prominent as the product. I'm Jacqueline Smith, and Max Factor understands. But Max Factor didn't understand when Kmart came calling. Max Factor did not want me to join with Kmart. They said, it's not your customer. So on the first meeting after that, I turned it down. The discount retailer didn't seem like the right match for Smith's image. But Kmart wanted more than her face and her name. They wanted her ideas, too. I've always loved design, and I, I thought, well, this is unknown terrain, but this is going to be a challenge. This is going to be fun. And on instinct, I changed my mind and said, this is something I want to do. Mary, your closet Let's here. Go. Let's go. In the 32 years since, Smith's designs have filled women's closets, including holiday. her own. And I think one of the best sellers are always my little short um, jackets that you can wear with jeans, you can wear with a pencil skirt. Kmart research shows that her brand is well-recognized among women between 35 and 60. 80% recognizability. So that puts me as one of the most recognized brands in the country. Certainly, your name may get people to buy it the first time. But the product makes you come back. 100 million women today have purchased some of my clothing or or accessories. And while products with Smith's name fill many aisles in Kmart stores, those stores aren't nearly as busy as they once were. Sears Holdings, which owns Kmart, warned investors last month there's substantial doubt the company can continue as a going concern. You see Kmart as the home 
for your brand. It must be difficult, however, to see those stories. Sears Holdings, Jones Kmart in big trouble. Absolutely. Despite what you read, despite what you hear, we're still out there working hard, producing new things. You know, every retailer is faced with stores closing. We're not the only one. In spite of the challenges, she continues to look to the future, working with Kmart designers on a new line of infants' clothing. You know what I would love to add, too? Some little coordinating bows. Oh, that's a great Could idea. we do that? Yeah, absolutely. You know. Do you have any idea how much money you've been worth to Kmart? A Texas girl never talks about money. <laughs> but it's, it, you know, it's a good feeling to know that we've reached so many people. And she is still reaching out, diversifying with fabrics, wigs, and skincare products. This is a history of time, though, you know? As an actor, she was an angel. So. In business, she seems to have all the angles covered. What do you think? Love it? Yeah. Okay. So I'm, I'm in the presence of potential criminals here, right? Just so I know. Not necessarily no. potential. <laughs> Ahead, tough cookies. So why would the sale of these homemade baked goods be prohibited by law? Dean Reynolds has a tale of cookie dough. All right, here we go. Come on. Let's go, Mama. In rural Blanchardville, Wisconsin, say the word cookie to Chris Marion and her baking buddies, and you have the recipe for a brawl. The critics say that this isn't about money or it's not about competition, it's about health. Oh, yeah, that's How a good one. How come it's healthy in 48 other states? What grandma ever killed her grandchild with cookies? <laughs> you see, Chris runs a farm featuring an assortment of goats, chickens, and cows. Plus a bed and breakfast where she likes serving her guests her freshly baked treats. And make no mistake, treat is the word for it. That's lavender? Yep. She bakes some mighty tasty cookies. What do you think? It's great. I mean, it's um, sweet. Mm. But Chris has a problem, because if she sells, say, a half dozen or so of her lavender-infused lemon sugar cookies to her guests, the state of Wisconsin says she's broken the law. If you were to go to a farmer's market and put your wares on display on sale yeah you would be breaking the law yeah we'd be breaking the law and face up to six months in jail seriously because it turns out that wisconsin is one of only two states new jersey being the other one that ban the sale for profit of home-baked goods so i'm i'm in the presence of potential criminals here right just so i know not no. necessarily potential. <laughs> Lawbreakers. Yeah, we like to stir up trouble. <laughs> so for several years now, Chris and her partners in crime, Lisa Kiverist and Della Enns, have lobbied state legislators to lift the baked goods ban. How, how much money could you be making if this ban was lifted? So we figured it'd be at least $5,000. And that doesn't sound like a lot of money, but to small farms... It is a lot of money. Senate Bill 330, relating to the sale of homemade baked goods and homemade canned goods by Senator Harsdorf. Their so-called cookie bill passed the Wisconsin Senate twice, overwhelmingly. Those in favor, say aye. 
Opposed, no. The ayes have it. Still, it never came up for a vote in the assembly. And the reason, multiple sources tell CBS News, is this man. It's our job to listen to our constituents and serve as their voice when passing laws and approving a state budget. Assembly Speaker Robin Voss, who never scheduled a vote on the bill. Twice. Voss owns a popcorn business. He also has ties to the Wisconsin Grocers Association, which opposed the bill. Okay. Here he is bagging groceries at the group's legislative bag-off. We wanted to ask Voss about what some of his constituents clearly see as a half-baked stance, but he declined repeated requests for an interview. He did offer this statement, saying the bill would have created an unequal playing field and undermined small businesses. But Brandon Schultz of the Wisconsin Grocers Association did talk to us. It's not about muffins, and it's not about competition. It's about public health. We don't want to have anybody get sick. Schultz says commercial bakers and groceries are subjected to rigorous health and safety regulations that home bakers don't want to face. It doesn't make sense to impose the same rules on a hostess factory as it does a home baker. Attorney Erica Smith with the Institute for Justice, a national nonprofit law firm, represents the home bakers who are now suing the state of Wisconsin. All we're talking about is people using their home kitchens and their home ovens to make a small amount of goods and sell them to their community. This lawsuit for me is about creating rural economic development opportunities. Mm. A market downtown on a Saturday brings people in. A decision in the case is expected later this spring. Well, so if you win uh, the case, what happens next? We start baking. <laughs> yeah. We're going to well, have a party. <laughs> we are all... Next is my baby. A quick trip to a bodega. Bodega is a Spanish word for a neighborhood store, a small store that plays a large role in many communities. Here's our newest Sunday morning contributor, NPR's Maria Inajosa. From the outside, this place looks like a nothing special corner grocery, but a bodega. A real New York City bodega. The best coffee. Is so much more. Buen día, mi reina, ¿cómo está? When you walk into a bodega, you feel like you're at home. Diana Rodriguez would know. I can go back as far where I was born because I lived on top of a bodega. And started working here at the age of six. A bodega is a place where you might find ripe avocados right below the Jackson ball set and where the pantyhose sit next to the glue traps. Confusing to the outsider, maybe, but neighborhood folks come here day after day for all of those things, plus a breakfast sandwich, Diana's favorite. A bacon, egg, and cheese on a hero. Variations on egg and cheese. Un sandwich de huevo con queso. So good. There are more than 10,000 bodegas throughout New York City's five boroughs. For you, what is the heart of a great bodega. El que está detrás del counter. The person behind the counter. Definitivamente, sí. At Pamela's Green Deli, that person behind the counter is Pamela. 
She's been a fixture at this location for nearly 30 years. Here's my baby. Michael Diaz may not know her real name is Nina Baez, but she knows his name and more. If I say, hi, Miss Pamela, how are you doing? She says, so, you want your cheese and ham sandwich? I say, of course. This bodega is owned by Diana's father, Radames Rodriguez, who came to the United States from the Dominican Republic in 1985. I love the bodega because, first of all, I make money. And second of all, I like be with people. He and his two brothers now own 12 bodegas, where shoppers find something you can't buy. Have you ever helped somebody get a, a plumber or an electrician? Yes. Have you ever helped somebody with a loan? Yes. So it's no surprise that there's no shortage of good luck dollar bills. <laughs> That's a good luck. <laughs> the whole neighborhood. <laughs> yes. Yo sé que ellos me quieren al igual que los quiero yo a ellos. It means that you feel like your customers love you? Yes. As much as you love your customers? Yes. <laughs> but along with the good, there's a little bad. It's really hard to prevent people from buying things that aren't as healthy. According to New York City health officials, poor neighborhoods suffer from high rates of diabetes and obesity, and bodegas are hardly known for stocking nutritious foods. I live for pork skins when I come to the bodega. Right here, no sugar. Fantastic for my pre-diabetic condition. Okay. That's because there's only enough room for what sells. The snack cake food group. <laughs> Which is why Dallas Penn, comedian and blogger, created his special bodega food pyramid. Without the snack cakes, without the potato chips, and the quarter waters and the 40 ounces, no, you're not a bodega, I'm sorry. You're just a grocery store. To be certain, there are signs of change on the shelves of some bodegas. The first step is for bodegas to be courageous. The second step is let's educate the consumers on the other products that are going to be of value to them. The thousands of bodegas throughout New York are owned by Dominicans, Puerto Ricans, Yemenis, and others. And for 19-year-old Diana Rodriguez, someday running a bodega of her own defines the American dream. Still, her father is hoping she aims higher. You kept saying that bodega is the best thing to have, but every time I say I want to have a bodega, you're like... But I don't want you to go through all the things that I, I, I went through. Okay, but now we don't have to start from day one, you know? It's like I, t I have to take advantage of the fact that you've made it so far. All the same, Diana knows that while her college degree is still a few years off, she already has a higher education in bodega. I understand I'm going to school for bio and pre-med and hopefully I do go into medical school and stuff like that, but that's not me. Business runs in my family, it runs in my blood, so it's like, if I can do more, I will. I have a good one. You too. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Coming up, it's a date. Anytime I tell someone about the idea, they immediately rattle off uh, what they hate. And Brendan I Alper is no psychologist, but he does seem to know what makes people tick. People hate things everywhere. Maybe not the same things, um, but everyone likes to complain. That truth led the former Goldman Sachs finance associate to quit his job and launch a dating app 
like no other. Hater is the dating app that matches you based on what you hate. You swipe on more than 3,000 topics, loving or hating as many as you want. Alper thinks mutual dislikes are a better sign of compatibility than mutual likes, and two studies seem to back him up. So what have you discovered that people hate the most? The presidential election of 2016. Was just the whole hated. thing. Exactly. But it's not just politics. It's everything. Bad Wi-Fi is up there. Oh, I'm with them. Yeah. yeah. Paying extra to get guacamole on your burrito. That's annoying. Man buns is pretty unpopular. <laughs> As uh, it should be. Yeah. When people celebrate their birthdays for an entire week. Unless it's me. Yeah. Well, <laughs> this person has a problem. <laughs> Alper knew he was on to something soon after he launched the app last February. We already have 350,000 users all around the world. Wow. Yeah, so it was quick. But the competition is steep. Online dating is a roughly $2 billion industry. I read somewhere that one in 10 Americans spends an average of an hour a day on yep. a dating app. It's becoming more and more about the dopamine rush of getting a match. Perhaps seeking a dopamine rush. You can like it. 50% of people yeah. like it. I gave Hater a try. People who start an Instagram for their dog. Hate, hate that. <laughs> People who collect Mardi Gras beans. That's, that's pretty high on the hate scale. Hate, yeah. yeah. You, hate. you soon discover there is a lot to hate. Comic book movies. Oh, hate. Only 8% of people agree. <laughs> I'd never get a date. <laughs> but then again, if Alper is right, hate may be the first step to lasting love. Have you had any highly successful matches out of this so far? Yeah, we have this one couple. They both hated the Super Bowl, uh, but they loved queso dip. So during the Super Bowl, they got together, they made queso dip, and they didn't watch the Super Bowl. <laughs> True was, love. Yeah, exactly. That's it right there. However serious your money problems may be, would you trade them for the challenge of living on just $1 a day? For millions, Tony DeCopel tells us, that's the reality every day. Think about this. One out of every nine people on Earth gets by on less than $2 a day. I want people to go and look at those images and immerse themselves as if that was their reality. It just begs the question, why? Pulitzer Prize-winning photojournalist Renee Beyer has spent years photographing a world we don't often want to see. Those photographs and the stories they capture are part of a new traveling exhibit, Living on a Dollar a Day. The most important thing for me was to preserve their dignity in these pictures. Was to How did you do that? To show how hardworking they were, to let their life unfold in front of me and to document that life. She does it by documenting not just their lack of food, clean water, and health care, but their smiles, too. If you were to take that child out of that scene, that's just like an everyday slice of life for a child, just running, smiling. Globally, the poorest of the poor total more than $800 million. One of the myths about poverty is that people who are poor are lazy. And I have to say that in all of my travels through, you know, four continents, that that couldn't be farther from the truth. 
To get to the truth, Meyer took time off from her newspaper job at the Sacramento Bee. You can say your name very good English. She traveled to 10 countries, taking 15,000 photographs. You can see the fire here. Even his eyelashes are singed from the fire, from working so close and digging, you know, with his bare hands in this toxic waste. In Ghana, children in flip-flops sift through the burning fragments of old computers, searching for metal they can sell. That's where Bayer met Fadi, age 8, stricken with malaria and crying as she worked. I said, what's the matter? Why is she so sad? And they said, that's because she wants to go home with you broke my heart. <laughs> the number of people living this way is actually dropping. It's down more than half since 1990, thanks to foreign aid and new investments in health and education. And yes, thanks to some of Byers' photos, too. All of these children are now in school, helped by people inspired by her photographs. I want to show you the pic- a picture of her. Wow. Body? Wait a minute, I need to get you next to the picture here. She's now at boarding school. And she has the most amazing smile. Of course, there are still millions out there who aren't as lucky, which Bayer hopes to change one photo at a time. Correspondent Tony DeCopal. We have more on many of the stories you've seen here this morning, and I have some thoughts about how, once again, we're living above our means on our Sunday morning website. I'm Melody Hobson. Please join Jane Pauley again next Sunday morning.